Hey, this is Danny Heifetz from the Ringer Fantasy Football Show. For all your fantasy football needs, check out the Ringer Fantasy Football Show with me, Craig Horlbeck, and Danny Kelly. That's the Ringer Fantasy Football Show on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. On April 3rd, the Walt Disney Company will be hosting its annual meeting of shareholders, and we need you all to vote for your board. It's important you vote only for Disney's 12 nominees using the white proxy card. Do not vote for the Tryon Group or Blackwell's nominees. Learn more at VoteDisney.com. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC Slim Fit Trouser. But I am a joggers guy. I just... Once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I want to wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. It is Wednesday, September 20th. One of the more interesting figures in the Hollywood community hasn't really been involved in Hollywood that much at all, at least not directly. He's Casey Wasserman, founder of the Wasserman Agency and Marketing Firm, which has become a big player in sports, branding, music. They've got clients like Ed Sheeran, Billie Eilish, Brandi Carlile. He's also the chair of the 2028 Olympics Committee. And he was instrumental in bringing the games back to L.A. All of that was great, but Casey had avoided the traditional film and television talent, perhaps because he wanted to do something different than his grandfather, the legendary Lou Wasserman, probably one of the top five most powerful people in the history of entertainment. Lou ran the MCA agency, then merged it into Universal and owned the studio for about 30 years as one of the town's all-time power brokers. But Casey is finally jumping into the actor and filmmaker business, acquiring Brillstein, one of the town's first real management and production companies. It's got a ton of clients you know, like Brad Pitt, Jason Sudeikis, Rachel Brosnahan, Tiffany Haddish, and they produce shows alongside clients, most notably The Sopranos and Bill Maher's show on HBO. Fun fact, I once defended Bernie Brillstein's deposition. That's another story. He died in 2008. And now this sale is a pretty big move in the representation world. Another sign that the worlds of sports, music, Hollywood, and other industries are merging. It's also interesting because agents and managers are typically in separate companies. Now Casey has them all under one roof. And it's happening when there's so much movement at the agencies and in the representation business in general, like CAA's new $7 billion valuation, Endeavor going public, a lot of anxiety about the future of these businesses amid all the problems in the industry. So today, it's Casey Wasserman, the move from sports to Hollywood. We'll talk some Olympic stuff, too. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Casey Wasserman, who is chairman and CEO of the Wasserman Agency. Welcome, Casey. Good to be here, Matt. How are you? I'm good. What is your title with the Olympics? I'm the chairperson of uh, the LA 2028 organizing committee for the Olympics and Paralympics. And I have to make my first correction of you. You know, we're not Wasserman Agency. We're just Wasserman because we just bought a management company. Right. Okay. So that's going to be one of my first questions. But I want to start by doing a broader question here because you have pretty assiduously built your business by kind of dancing around Hollywood. You went to sports. You did music, you do branding, but you had not done film and television talent per se, or at least not in a significant way. That 
I assume was because you wanted to go a different route than perhaps your grandfather did. Was that the reason? So like, why did you do that? And why now? Why the change of heart? And why are you diving into film and TV talent with Brillstein? Originally, for sure, it was intentional for, for two reasons. One, I was always, always have been and still am very passionate about the business of sports. And so for, for me to start a business in my area of highest passion made a lot of sense. And then two, when your last name is Wasserman, it's like probably if your last name is Jordan and your dad's played basketball, you probably don't play basketball unless you're really good at it. So I wanted to be judged for what I did, not have a qualifier after everything I did. So, mm-hmm. you know, if I'd started the entertainment business in any regard, it was said there would have been a comma and or comma, but after everything I would have done. And ironically, 21 years later, and I started my business after he passed away. And it's, his name is still in the articles. It's just there's not a qualifier about where we are today, thankfully. But I started an area I loved and I'm passionate about. We continued to build the business significantly over the last 21 years, uh, acquired the music agency during COVID, obviously, and uh, have been thinking about this for a long time. Wasn't sure what that meant. We could have done a lot of different things. We could have just bought a production business uh, to really ch- check that box because it's an area of high opportunity for our existing clients. But in the end, we feel very comfortable operating a business with managers. Yeah, why the change of heart? It's really a a function of the business changing. Uh, The business has changed pretty dramatically. The lines between music, sports, and entertainment are, if not gone, quite blurred. Don't forget fashion. CAA is now owned by a fashion company. And so for me... It was about being able to serve our clients. You know, it's, it's look, we're in the service business. So we are uh, only as good as the work we can do for our clients. And, and to do that, we have to have the capabilities and the credibility in the areas that are, are valuable for them. So I want to get into this question of agencies and management companies, because back when I was a lawyer, I actually would litigate some of these cases where managers who are prohibited by law in California from quote-unquote, procuring jobs for their client. There is a distinction. I know most people don't understand the difference between an agent and a manager. I always give people the entourage explanation. It's RE versus E. But it really is a legal distinction in California and other states as to what an agent can do and what a manager can do. Agents get you jobs. Managers manage your life and your business. And now you have bought a management company while most of your business is a talent agency. So how is that going to work both legally and in practice? Let me take a step back. On the sports side, there's only one or the other. There aren't both functions. So there's, Mm -hmm. and in some sports, they call themselves managers and in some sports, they call themselves agents. So I just say, so that's about sports representation. Uh, Forget about the nomenclature. It's a regulated industry, but it's only regulated and there's only one of those advisors. In the music side, we are an agent because that's also a regulated industry. In the music industry, managers manage the career and the agents are the only ones who are supposed to be able to procure live performances for them. Managers sometimes don't have to have an agent. Agents, Artists with agents sometimes don't have managers. Mm-hmm. Most of the time they have both. And, most of the t- and that is obviously the delineation of responsibility. And for us, the management business, you know, two things. Let's just be honest. There's there's a few really, really large, well-run, great client list, great group of leadership agencies. And for us, if we 
can't be in a business in a significant and meaningful way. It's not appropriate for us to be in this as far as I'm concerned. So th- there's really three agencies in this world today. And, and to try and be bespoke amongst those three is probably not a good idea. At the same time, there's not been much consolidation on the management side, uh, unlike the agency side. Mm-hmm. And in parallel, the opportunity to be able to produce uh, content. Managers can produce with their clients. Agents are prohibited by that same law from producing the content that they, uh, their clients make. Correct. So we're in the larger than l- l- larger than twenty percent, and there's caveats on that. But for the, <laughs> I, I just want to be clear: for the most part, agents yes. are not supposed to be going into business with their clients to produce their shows. Managers have no limitations and can do whatever they want. Correct. And so, w- with all that being said, we look at ourselves as uh, at least for about half of our our business in, in the business of representing talent, and we do it in a way that we think is where there's the highest opportunity to do that and to create value for the business we're creating. And so in music, that's an agent. In entertainment, that's a manager. And in sports, it's just pure representation. And the ability to produce is truly interesting and compelling and we think a big opportunity. The irony of all these rules is, you know, most of them are because of my grandfather. Uh, Going back to when when he was an agent uh, and bought Review and then he bought Universal and, you know, the rest is history. But that's raising the question that I have. What if this is challenged? It's not. It's not. We had. It only be challenged if we had. We were a registered talent agency, and we're not. We're a registered music agent, and we're a registered sports ah, agent. Those, okay. those are those are totally different environments that are governed by different regulatory bodies and different unions. All right. So that is the distinction there. Hundred percent. That yeah, because you're you're arguing that you have an agency in the music and sports world. You do not have an agency in the traditional talent world. Now you have a management company. Because my next question was going to be, what's preventing CAA or WME? from buying one of the management companies like Anonymous Content or Three Arts? I've never looked at it that way. I assume there's legal restrictions. You know, no different than CA. It could be a music manager if it wanted instead of being a music agent, which it is. It's a sports agent, but a lot of those sports agents call themselves managers. So, you know, as long as you're within the confines of the regulatory environment you're operating, so and with the guild affiliations and the guild um, agreements, we're in obviously total compliance in, in all the areas we operate in. You mentioned consolidation. And the fact that it's happened on the agency side, but not necessarily on the management side of the business. Why do you think that's the case? And do you think over the next couple of years, we're going to see a great bundling of these management companies that have sprouted up over the past two decades? My guess as to why it hasn't happened or my, my view as to why it hasn't happened to date is probably because management companies have always been a little more boutique and bespoke than the agencies, which operate at a greater scale. And that scale has allowed them to expand their businesses on the agency side at a much bigger level, which creates compelling economics to do things like they've done, which is consolidate, bring in outside capital, use that capital to acquire and grow businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, management companies have, have not done that historically because they are smaller and to put too small together doesn't create economic increased economic value uh, per se or in increased economic opportunity for either the managers or the clients. And so it's been unconsolidated for probably pretty practical, psychological, and, and kind of interpersonal reasons. And I think there's going to be some opportunities to, whether it's consolidate or continue to attract and hire great managers uh, to build the business. You know, in this day and age, scale matters. Uh, and scale matters not just to say you have scale. Scale matters because the, the caliber of the clients that we represent require you to be able to serve them and their interests and their opportunities 
on a global basis across all sorts of opportunity sets. And I think you're going to see continued changes in the management space. I don't think our acquisition will be the last acquisition. And I don't, either for us or for others. I was going to say, are you going to try to go after others, maybe roll them all up? So I don't, I don't believe a roll-up in, in personal service businesses is probably the right way to do things because I don't think you can ask competitors to work with each other. You know, the day before they hate each other, the next day they work together. Sure. I think that's a very difficult thing to do. We will continue to scale the business. That's for sure. It's interesting because if you look at the management landscape, unlike the agencies, which have really scaled and are now obviously you know, backed by private equity, the management business is harder to scale. If you look at the number of managers who have been able to run their companies and also scale their own personal businesses, it's really a small number. I mean, look what just happened to Scooter Braun. I mean, he had a management company and he wanted to scale and scale and scale. And he ended up losing all the clients because he had other interests. And they were like, well, wait a second, you're not my manager. There's an, there's an expectation of these managers that they be available and that they be more uh, attuned to the individual clients. I mean, other than like a Rick Yorn, who, you know, has his own thing and he's backed by Ron Burkle. And like, he does have this level of A-list clients that he's been able to uh, add on and add on to. There aren't a lot of managers that have been able to, you know, balance 10, 15 clients on their own and still run a company. Yeah, well, and, and that's not an accident, right? And, and I think it's also one of the things that makes us different is I'm not an agent or a manager. There are clients who I'm responsible to every day, whether it's on the basketball court, or on tour, or on a movie set. My job is to manage the company, allocate resources, make sure the culture's right, make sure the strategy's right. And so John Lehman and Cynthia and Mark and Sandy, and they can continue to build Brillstein. If that business gets bigger, it's because we have attracted people who are valuable additions to that business. You don't get bigger by just having the same number of managers represent more clients. You get bigger by adding complementary managers to expand the client base. Sure. We have scale, but no single agent and now manager at this company is being asked to represent more clients than they should or can be capable of paying attention to. While at the same time, I can go acquire a business like Drillstein. I can go do some of the things we're doing overseas in Europe and across the sports business or some of the other things we're working on which provides the scale and the perspective and the opportunity without distracting the managers or the agents in our company from doing what they're doing and their primary responsibility is, which to your point is to represent those clients consistently and purely in their best interests. Yeah, that's an interesting point that you are not actually a representative, but you are a manager, unlike a lot of these guys who started management companies and also are active day-to-day managers. The problem with the service business, as everybody knows, is obviously the assets go home at night. And you're talking about adding people to the business. But you know, I know there's already other management companies that are going after the Brillstein people saying, oh, things are changing. Come on over. How do you value a company when the assets are clients that are, you know, narcissistic actors that could walk out the door at any time or managers that could decide that the grass is greener elsewhere? Start from a position that I think all businesses are people businesses and all businesses succeed or fail based on human beings and their personalities and their idiosyncrasies and their issues. So it's easy to say that it's unique and I don't think it is. I think one of the reasons we succeed is we know how to manage a business uh, of people who represent talent. And we've got 
prior to today's closing, I think 330 sports agents around the world <laughs> and music agents together. And then we, now we're adding a big management company. And we know how to manage a business of people who represent talent. Uh, I wish our competitors, if they want to come try and take our talent, good luck. They're more than <laughs> entitled to try. I feel very confident in our business, our ability to provide an environment. Look, here's what's important if you represent talent. Are you working in a place that is the best place to attract and retain your clients? Because that's how you make your living. So I would say we have a very good track record of being that. If we don't have a good track record in that, it doesn't matter what I tell people we do or how we do it. If we can't be a place that the managers at Brillstein think we are a great place for them to attract and retain talent, then they should leave because that's their livelihood. So look, we don't have illusions that there's some secret sauce here. We, we believe that a good culture and good people attract good clients. My job is to make sure we have good people and a good culture. And, uh, and I believe that the rest will take care of itself. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is back. Wait, wasn't that a movie from 2009? Okay. Anyway, I do love more hours of daylight. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash town. Tap the banner to learn more. What are you doing about the pressure on percentages, on commissions? You hear a lot about athletes being able to negotiate down percentages. You guys holding the line or are you willing to make deals? Look, I, I, the short answer is everybody would be lying if they tell you that whether it's for one client or all their clients, they don't negotiate commission. So let's just be honest. Everyone has had the conversation with a client at some point in their career. But I do believe you get what you pay for. And so if you're the best player in the world in a really big sport, the marginal value of your agent and your contract for playing is small. But that's the exception. That's not the rule. And I always try and remind people, life is not just up and to the right. Life is full of up and downs. And we earn our money supporting our clients through all of those cycles and after their career as well. And so we think there's a real value to what we do. And that's reflected in the fees we get from our clients. So obviously, one of the things that your grandfather was known for was being this kind of figure in the community that could step in when there were problems. And he did so during previous strikes. Do you have thoughts on the current strike? And, you know, perhaps uh, would you be interested in getting involved to help mediate this? So look, he, he has a great, obviously, history. It's a big part of his history was his ability to manage the industry through these labor and potential labor disputes. Uh, I think it came from a couple places. One, obviously, he represented talent, and then he had a studio. Sure. So he understood the nuances of both sides, and he had credibility with both sides. He was clearly the leader of the industry on behalf of the studios and spoke absolutely on behalf of them. And yet the unions knew that what he said was what he meant. What he meant was the truth. And when he shook their hand, they had a deal. And so trust and credibility and transparency are the key to all labor disputes. It doesn't matter whether it's in the entertainment industry or in the sports world. Where one, I do have some experience in the sports world. 
there's clearly been a broken down of trust and communication in this process. The other thing is, I do not know how you solve a strike without sitting in a room. Yeah, in sports, don't they just get in a room and say, we're not coming out until there's a deal? They do. And I have told everybody involved when they ask for my advice or not, I say, my only suggestion is lock yourselves in a room and don't come out until it's done because it's that important. It's going to get solved and you can't solve things by not talking. And the last thing that's really being missed here is, look, we, you and I both live in Los Angeles. This is affecting a lot of people in our community who aren't on strike, but whose livelihoods depend on this industry. And that is real, that is meaningful, and that is not okay that that's being lost in this process. So it's incumbent upon both sides who have legitimate issues. Obviously, our perspective is always going to be making sure the talent is protected, but we can't pretend like the world isn't changing for the content companies because it is. And we have to find a deal that is aware and representative and understands and solves the, the real issues on both sides because there are real issues. Um, but it, ultimately, like where is. Where's the mayor of L.A. in this? Where's Gavin Newsom? You look at what Joe Biden is doing on the auto workers strike. He's like getting involved. Why are these yeah. uh, two powerful figures sitting on the sidelines? I think they're sitting on the sidelines because they're not subject matter experts. So I actually don't think they should be go-betweens. I think what they should be doing is pressuring people to get in a room and not get out till a deal is done. This is too important. I, I don't know how accurate it is, but I read that the entertainment industry is 3.2% of America's output and the auto industry is 3%. <laughs> Ironically, these are both industries that are going through really systemic paradigm changing moments, right? This transition to electric vehicles is shattering the old core of what was the auto industry. Clearly, this transition to direct to consumer and streaming is shattering the old economics of the entertainment industry. Those things are hard to manage through and they're hard to handle for labor and they're hard to handle for management. And so we got to get people in a room. When it comes to me, I, I don't think they need more people involved in this process. If someone asked and thought I could be helpful, obviously I would. My guess is that the problem is not how many people are involved. My guess is that the problem is there's a lot of history and a, and a big lack of trust, and they just need to sit in a room and put all that behind them. And for the industry we all care about and work in, and for the community we all live in, it needs to get solved quickly. All right, let's talk a little bit about the Olympics because obviously you just hit the five-year mark, five years till the 2028 Olympics. Is there like a checklist of all <laughs> the things that have to happen in the run-up to an Olympic Games? I wish there was a checklist because then we would actually know everything we have to do. Well, don't, they, don't you like talk to your peers at other countries who have done this and get their checklist? No, I mean, we're only the, we will only be the 34th Summer Olympics in the history of the last one in this country was 1996, a Summer Olympics. That was obviously a generation ago and a whole different paradigm for delivery. So the truth is there's no one who's done what we're going to do. Most importantly, how much am I going to get to Airbnb my house for those two weeks? <laughs> that, that, is, that, is, that is all up to you, my friend. I would prefer you stay here and enjoy the majesty of the Olympic Games. Oh, no, we'll be here. We're going to move in with a friend of mine and rent uh, out my house okay. and we'll split it. Fair enough. So there is, there is no checklist. It is a project unlike any other, uh, which is why it's so hard to do and it's so unique and so few cities are actually able to do it. It's the operational equivalent of producing seven Super Bowls a day for 30 days. We'll sell 15 million tickets in 30 days. That's four plus seasons of Dodger baseball in 30 days. And so this thing is really unique and, and requires a depth and a breadth of an organization that is unlike anything. And by the way, the other thing that's crazy is 
six months after it's over, we all get fired and it goes out of business essentially and turns into a perpetual nonprofit for the city. And so it's this weird thing that we, we started, we start for 11 years, we go from zero employees to 3,500 plus probably 75,000 volunteers. And then we go out of business and it's a really unique thing. We've done a lot of really compelling things. We, we are way, way ahead of where an organizing committee has ever been this far out of, of an opening ceremonies, which is July 14th, 2028. And having said that, I still wake up in the middle of the night every night thinking, worrying, having anxiety about the things we need to be doing still every day because there's just so much to do. And the one thing I can tell people is uh, opening ceremonies will start on time, whether we like it or not. So we weren't, the one thing we cannot buy is more time. Well, the last LA Olympics made money and that was innovative at the time. All these cities have been losing money on the Olympics and you have a plan you claim will be profitable. We do. Look, and that's a function of Los Angeles. Uh, the 84 Olympics were unique. The economic model of the Olympics is radically different today than it was then. But in LA, we're not building a single new venue, not a single piece of infrastructure. We will build some temporary facilities like a temporary beach volleyball stadium on the beach in Santa Monica and things like that. But we have no permanent venues to build. Uh, in Paris, they're still building an Olympic village and opening ceremonies is in you know eight months. In LA, there's 20,000 kids living in our athletes village uh, on the campus at UCLA and we'll move them out and move the, move the athletes in and then move the athletes out and students will move back in for the, the fall of 2028. And so that's a huge advantage. It's why, frankly, I'm qualified to do this job. It's why LA is able to host these games and it's why with great confidence, uh, we say we're ability to deliver a games uh, that, that we are confident um, at worst break even. Yeah, why did you want to do this? Sounds like a huge pain in the ass. I was the schmuck who, when Mayor Garcetti called, I, uh, well, the first two times he called, I said, no, and it's a terrible idea. And the third time he kind of played the mayor card and said, look, I don't really care. You have to do this. And uh, from when we started bidding till the end of the games will have been 14 years. It's essentially a full-time job, even though it's not my full-time job. Um, I'm a volunteer. Uh, the rest of the staff is obviously paid and, and works full-time on this. Uh, I spend a lot of time on it. And I think it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to really leave an indelible impact on a city i born in, raised in, raised my kids in, and, and love deeply. And, and I think we have a chance to make an impact on this city. I think we have a, make, have a chance to create a, a, a legacy for American athletes. And I really think, and not to sound too uh, Pollyannish, but I think we have a, a chance to remind people that we're all Americans and to be proud of the flag we have on our back, despite what we think differently about, because we're all wearing the same flag. You thought about who's lighting the torch? I have. Reveal it now for the whole world. Definitely not. I have, I have learned from my friend, Billy Payne, who was the, the me of Atlanta. It was, it was maybe he said the most cloak and dagger operation they had during the entire planning was keeping that a, a secret. Um, oh, that was so Muhammad Ali, right? It was. And even after rehearsals the night before that, people didn't know who it was. So we were going to do our best to keep it secret. We obviously haven't picked the person either. So that's easy. My prediction, Adam Sandler in basketball <laughs> shorts. Real scene client. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right. Well, we will see. Thank you, Casey, for coming on. Anytime, Matt. All right. We're back with the call sheet. Craig, did you happen to see the Aquaman 2 trailer last week? I did. And um, <laughs> did you have any thoughts on that trailer? 
Look, I've talked to you a lot about where I think the state of superhero movies is, but this movie in general looks tough. I actually went back and watched the first Aquaman trailer, the original Aquaman with Jason Momoa trailer, and it looks like the exact same movie. Wow, you're doing your research here. I did not care enough to do that. It's like the same three characters, the the kind of the same villain situation. You could have blended those two trailers. It's essentially just a recut trailer of, of the first one. Yeah, except this one, they have absolutely minimized Amber Heard. She's in like one quick flash of the trailer uh, for, you know, obvious reasons. But yeah, pretty rough. This one does not look great. But it indicated something to me that I want to talk about. I think we have passed the point of no return here on these 2023 movie releases. And we will not see any more big delays for the strike. I think the big November, December movies that we're considering Moving to 2024, Aquaman, Wonka, the Hunger Games prequel, the Marvels. I think those all now will come out as planned, even though their stars cannot promote it. Why do you think now is the point of no return? Why couldn't you push it later on? Well, a lot of these have long lead press that you saw. It was kind of hilarious to see these fall magazine issues come out. And a lot of them had features on Zendaya and the Challengers movie. That was pushed after, obviously, the deadlines for those publications. And I think that there's stuff in the works. And when you put out a trailer with a date, and it it would be tough to move those now. Um, And they've had the choice to move them. They've known about the strike, and they chose to put out these trailers. So I think that means that these studios are locked in on these dates and the mechanism for release will you know, continue and we'll see these come out. Whether they will do as well as they would have otherwise, we will probably never know. I think a lot of these movies that are coming out right now probably are being hurt a little from the lack of promotion this past weekend, Haunting in Venice. My prediction, I, I beat the prediction, but it didn't do what some thought it would do. And you know, this dumb money movie, I think is going to be really hurt by not having its stars to promote. Um, but we'll see. Maybe these tent poles will sell themselves. Well, then I'm excited that we can do our <laughs> mas- maestro Wonka double feature that we've been planning. I know. Oh, Wonka, that's the one. I mean, the, the Chalamet of it all, they probably will benefit a lot from having him. Hopefully the strike will be done by then. Right. But if not, we're going to get a Wonka movie with no Timmy C promotion. Well, I'll be there regardless. You will. Whether, uh, I will not. Know. I will not. Um, actually, I, don't, I shouldn't say that. Maybe it's good. I, I don't want to pass judgment. It just looks bad. Uh, Aquaman, though, man. That's, that's <laughs> you don't want to pass judgment, but it looks bad. It does. I know. This has been my hobby horse. It's just I, I, don't, I don't understand putting him in that role. He's not charismatic enough, and he doesn't have the kind of like weirdness to him that both Gene Wilder and Johnny Depp had. Uh, but we'll see. I have Maybe. a problem with the casting and the choice to even make the film. Well, they're making it like a both. children's movie. They're trying to Harry Potterize it, and they have the producer of Harry Potter on it, David Heyman. So I, I think that's the goal with it is to make it an all audience family holiday movie. It's just I, I don't know, like a tiny Hugh Grant Oopa Loopa aside, it just doesn't look appealing. No, I think also the best parts about Willy Wonka are that it is not a children's movie, and there's actually real dark. Adult humor. Totally. Uh, But Aquaman, we'll see you in December. Not going to get pushed. That's my prediction. All right. That's the show for today. I want to thank my guest, Casey Wasserman. I want to thank producer Craig Holbeck, our editor, Jesse Lopez. And I want to thank you. We will see you later this week. 